Uh, greetings to all those of you who are gathered with us, uh, guests, members, welcome. I invite you to turn in God's Word to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 14. Well, we're continuing in what might be roughly termed the practical uh, moral exhortation portion of the letter. Um, last week, we were called to be renewed in our speaking, uh, in our feeling to turn from ungodly and unrighteous anger. This week, we're called to sexual purity. That's the thrust of our passage today. Ephesians 5, 3 through 14. Let's hear God's word together. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that you are light and there is no darkness in you. We confess that you are holy and pure and good and righteous in all that you are and in all that you do. Father, we ask that we would increasingly reflect your light and purity. Uh, we ask that you would enable us through your word and spirit to set aside sexual impurity and every other kind of impurity, Lord, and walk in righteousness and submission to you. We pray, Lord, that you would use your word this morning to sanctify us, to renew us, to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you'd bring encouragement and comfort where we need to be encouraged. Amen. In, a, in the book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, church historian Carl Truman makes the observation that uh, the sexual revolution in the 1960s was not about expanding the boundaries of legitimate sexual activities, uh, such that there were certain activities prior to the sexual revolution that were considered illegitimate, immoral, and then with the revolution, uh, they, they are deemed legitimate. He says, no, 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 something else is happening. Uh, in the 60s, with the sexual revolution, what is rejected is the idea that there is a, there's just a norm for sexuality that there is such a thing as immoral sexual conduct and moral sexual conduct. The whole idea of immoral sexual conduct is rejected. There is no moral norm for it. Uh, as long as you don't hurt anyone and it's consensual, do what feels good is the idea. Uh, against this view, which is we've seen the fruit of this view uh, and all the misery that it has created in our society, against this view, Scripture teaches that God has given sex to human beings, it's His gift, and it's his blueprint that should determine how it is used. And when we submit to that blueprint, we flourish 
as human beings. Uh, and when we don't, we, uh, we are impoverished, we are injured, and not only that, we actually rebel against the Creator. The call of this passage is that we turn from sexual immorality, everything that is out of step with God's blueprint for sexuality. Uh, we turn from sexual impurity and walk in the light. It's a call to sexual purity. As we look at this passage, we'll note three things. A, reject all sexual impurity. Turn from all sexual impurity. Two, walk in the light. And three, help others find the light. So Paul begins with a blanket statement telling us to avoid all sexual conduct that is out of step with God's will. He uses a general expression here in verse 3, uh, sexual immorality, everything out of step with God's will is to be set aside, along with impurity, which in this context refers to sexual impurity, and covetousness. Uh, the word covetousness can be translated greed, and some commentators take this as a reference to literally and narrowly uh, an excessive desire for money. And it's possible, and the word is used in that way, in different contexts, and so some think that Paul is actually condemning two vices, sexual immorality and greed. Uh, I think, however, that the greed in view is a greed for sexual fulfillment, a, a greed for uh, bodies, not money. And uh, Paul uses that, the same word in Ephesians 4.19 to refer to greed in this expanded sense. Ephesians 4.19 says... They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So the greed here is not greed for money. It's a, it's a greed for sexual gratification, an over-desire for sex. And Paul is therefore condemning both the outward expression of sexual immorality uh, and also the heart level, the, the overwhelming desire, the lust uh, for sexual impurity. Such things, such conduct, such behaviors, such desires, uh, of course, shouldn't be done and should not even be named among God's people, among the saints. The saints are those who were once part of this dark, corrupt, evil world, but God has taken a hold of them, and he's transferred them from darkness to light. He has washed them through the blood of his Son, and he has claimed us, his saints, as his own. In the church, among the saints, uh, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. It should not exist. It should not be done. It should not even be named. God is holy and pure, and his people are called to reflect his holiness. Anything that is out of step with God's design for sexual gratification in marriage constitutes sexual immorality. So the, the teaching of Scripture is relatively straightforward. Uh, there is precisely one context in which sexual gratification is permissible, and that the context is the context of marriage, covenant love. When a husband and wife commit their lives to one another, within that covenant commitment, uh, physical intimacy is right and good and legitimate. That's the only context, though, in which sexual gratification ought to occur. Uh, every other form of sexual gratification outside of marriage is illegitimate. It's a form of sexual immorality. Uh, when you give your, yourself to someone physically, you ought also to give yourself to them in every other way, which you do when you marry them. Right? You, you're saying, I'm giving uh, not just my body to you, I'm, giving, uh, I'm committing to you emotionally, financially, and in every, every other sense. It's within, within that commitment that there should be physical intimacy. 
And physical intimacy, as I say, apart from that frame of reference, is sexually immoral. So fornication is sexually immoral. Uh, Fornication is unmarried people who come together physically. This is sin against God. Uh, They want the pleasure of sex without the commitments of marriage. This is wickedness in the sight of God. It's something to turn from. Sex outside of marriage is sin. Adultery is sin. Uh, To be physically united to someone other than one's spouse or somebody else's spouse is a serious act of contempt for God and also for the institution of marriage. Pornography is an instance of sexual immorality. To look at sexually explicit images on the internet or wherever else is to engage in sexual misconduct, to rebel against the Lord, to treat his image bearers as objects to be used for your sexual fulfillment. Uh, Looking at someone with lustful intent is condemned by Scripture as sexual immorality. Jesus teaches us, Matthew 5, 28, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. To look, to to leer, and to uh, be stimulated, and to lust after a person, a man or a woman, uh, and and look at them with lustful intent is to be guilty of sexual immorality. And even entertaining sexual thoughts of someone other than your spouse is sexual misconduct. Proverbs 6.25 says, Do not desire her, that is the adulteress, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, in your inner being, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Don't think about uh, someone who isn't your spouse in a a sexually charged way, another instance of sexual immorality. Some other uh, more subtle forms of sexual immorality would include knowingly putting yourself in a position where you could be tempted sexually. Uh, knowingly putting yourself in a place where you know there's a possibility of being tempted and you still do it. You don't want to burn your hand, but you want to enjoy the warmth of the fire, perhaps. Um, Proverbs 7, 6 through 13 says, At the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. Her here is the adulterous, forbidden temptress. Uh, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening at the time of night and darkness. So this young man knows what he's doing. He knows the, the seedy part of town where the temptress lives, and he chooses to go there. But it seems he's not committed to actually going through with it because she still comes out of her house, house and has to tempt him. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She seizes him and kisses him with bold face, says to him. So it seems that what's in view here is he knows there's the possibility of temptation and seduction, and he knowingly puts himself in that position and yet is not initially persuaded to go all the way, but then he's seduced and he succumbs. And the the lesson here is if you know there's a possibility of sexual immorality, uh, the righteous thing is to avoid putting yourself in that position, Uh, to knowingly put yourself in a position where seduction and temptation is possible as a form of sexual immorality. So for instance, if you're a businessman, and you're traveling to a new uh, city, different city, and you're alone in your hotel at night, it's not a good idea to go get a drink at the hotel bar by yourself. You're playing with fire. Stay in your room, read Psalms, and pray. Uh, right? Spend time with the Lord. You, you know that there are certain environments where that kind of thing happens with some frequency, 
And so the person who's pursuing sexual purity avoids those kinds of situations. Uh, we might add adulterous flirting, where a married individual, a man or a woman, engages in banter and joking with someone uh, that isn't their spouse, and they're not saying anything directly about being attracted to one another, but there's an undercurrent or subtext of romantic attraction. And when you see that, understand that your heart is going astray, and you have a responsibility before God to bring it back. Uh, part of the way we avoid drifting inwardly is by delighting in the wife of our youth, as Proverbs says. Uh, we are meant to cultivate a robust, romantic relationship with our wife, and husband. We are meant to pursue them, to delight in them, and avoid letting our heart drift even in those subtle ways towards others. If you find your heart drifting in those kinds of ways, when there's an undercurrent of attraction towards someone who isn't your wife or husband, understand you're in danger. Confess that to the Lord and repent. Guard your heart. And guarding your heart is an important part of sexual purity. Finally, let me add immodest dress. Uh, if you dress inappropriately to attract sexual attention, to excite uh, sexual interest, that's a form of sexual immorality. And uh, much of the f fashion, uh, it seems to me, much of the fashion today is inherently sexually, sexually immoral. Uh, and so Christian women especially want to be very careful about being modest in their dress. 1 Timothy 2.9, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. This is how godly women should dress, in a way that doesn't excite sexual interest, but is uh, fashionable, yes, elegant, fine, um, but modest. Uh, what's, what's the, what criteria should we apply here? Uh, roughly speaking, not too tight, not too short, not too low, right? The, uh, you apply those criteria to your clothing, and you basically get to where you need to go. Uh, this is a delicate matter. I'm not going to go into more detail than this, but uh, you can look at a godly woman in your life who has walked with the Lord a long time, and if there's some confusion, uh, ask her her opinion. What do you think about how I'm dressed? Is this okay? Is this modest? Uh, husbands, for example, should be consulted as well. Uh, but uh, you look around, and there's considerable immodesty in dress all over the place in our society. Christian women should be different. They're... they're uh, Apparel should be characterized by modesty. So whatever form it takes, whatever form sexual immorality takes, Paul is here saying, put all impurity away. There is no place for any of it among God's people. And it's not just impurity in terms of our behavior and desires, but even impurity in terms of our speech that should be set aside. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Dirty jokes have no place among God's people. Dirty minds that create dirty jokes are not fitting among the saints, among those who have been washed and claimed as God's own possession. Uh, if you tell dirty jokes, understand that you are not walking in line with Scripture. Uh, now, Paul is not saying that there isn't a place for humor and wit. Uh, humor, wit, joking, these are God's gifts to us. There's a place for them. But obscene joking, specifically, is out of place. So we shouldn't uh, joke in a dirty way, and we shouldn't find entertainment from dirty jokes, which means 90% of comedies that are put out today, movies that are put out today, you can't watch. Uh, if, if it's a filthy situation that causes people to laugh, or it's filthy jokes that cause people to laugh, it is not fitting for God's people to watch those kinds of movies. Uh, they're frivolous, 
and they're immoral. In addition, it, if we seek to be faithful to this, we will find that occasionally our social uh, interactions are a bit awkward. Um, you may notice if you go out to lunch with uh, unbelieving classmates or coworkers, pretty soon, often regrettably, someone engages in obscene joking. And that puts you in a very difficult situation. On the one hand, you don't want to participate with them, uh, so you abstain. But on the other hand, it doesn't seem appropriate either to be too censorious and say, okay, stop it, all of you. This is unrighteous. Um, <laughs> and so it, I, I haven't found a formula. I don't know exactly what the right balance is in that situation. Uh, typically, you don't engage. You just sort of sit there. Uh, maybe you have a cup of coffee that you can drink deeply while the <laughs> conversation's happening and wait for it, the storm to pass. Um, I've not found a good formula. It's awkward. You kind of wait for the obscene jokes to end. Uh, if somebody asks you why, you can tell them. I don't think that's appropriate. Jesus tells us not to speak that way. Um, it's a tough balancing act. But as God's people, we want to avoid obscene, dirty joking, as well as more overt forms of sexual immorality. Then we're given two reasons. Why should we do this? Why should we turn from sexual immorality? Um, first one, it's very sobering. Those who live in unrepentant sexual immorality have no place in the kingdom of God. Verse 5. Uh, for, so here we're given a reason. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, so notice here that strong uh, lust, desire for sex, is even idolatry, worship of another god. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So if your life is dominated by sexual immorality and there's no repentance, there's no reason to think that you have a place in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now in scripture, the kingdom of God and Christ has two phases. It is already present. So when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you enter that kingdom. You come under the life-giving rule of King Jesus, and life is good under that rule. There is peace and joy and self-control through the Holy Spirit. But then there's a future dimension of the kingdom. One day, Jesus will return, and all things will be made new and right, and the home we've always wanted will uh, be realized. And Paul is saying that anybody who lives in unrepentant sexual immorality has no inheritance in that future world. Sexually immoral people who don't turn from their sins, have no future. They have not eternal life through Jesus Christ, but ever everlasting death. They are, in a word, going to hell. Paul uh, continues to underscore that in verse 6. He says, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. Just full of empty words all around us, right, in our society. It's no big deal. It's no business but your own, what you do in the bedroom. Uh, do whatever you want as long as no one is hurt. Feel free to act however you want, and you're just fine. Well, Paul says this is a kind of empty words. This is deception. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes up, uh, upon the sons of disobedience. Don't let anybody fool you, he's saying. Don't let anybody tell you that sexual immorality is not a big deal. It's a very big deal. And because of sexual misconduct, the wrath of God is coming on humanity. There's a kind of deception even in a church context. We can hear things like, you know, because of grace, God is so gracious, it doesn't matter how you live. God forgives everything. Who cares how you live? It's all, it's all grace. Well, there's an element of truth. Praise be to God that he forgives even the vilest sins. We are saved by grace, not by our works. Praise God. But if we are really saved, our life is going to be transformed. Moral transformation doesn't sh save us, but it shows that we are saved. 
So somebody who lives in unrepentant sexual immorality has no reason to think that they're a Christian. Paul is saying to us very clearly, understand what the stakes are. To live in unrepentant sexual immorality is to cut yourself off from Christ's kingdom. You have no future. There is only judgment coming. Now we hear that, and because we know that we all, to one degree or another, struggle with sexual immorality, uh, there is no, no one here this morning who is perfectly righteous in this area. One of the questions we should ask is, okay, what does that mean that I am not saved? Does it mean that Christians can't struggle with sexual immorality and still be Christians? If I'm struggling with sexual immorality to a degree, does it mean that I'm cut off from Christ? And in answering that question, it's important to start by looking at what the New Testament says about uh, the status of believers in terms of their obedience uh, to God and, and struggles with sin. Uh, first thing to be said is that if you are in Christ, if the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you, your life should be characterized broadly by obedience. There is an expectation that those of us who have found life in Jesus are not just forgiven, but we are walking in newness of life. Living in the control of sin, which includes sexual immorality, is in a sense abnormal. It's not the normal Christian life. So we need to emphasize strongly that if we are trusting in Jesus, we can and ought to walk in newness of life. That's the first thing we want to say. But having said that, we also need to recognize that we are not going to be perfected until we die and go to be with Jesus Christ, or he comes back whichever happens first. Uh, we will never reach moral perfection in this life. We will struggle in all kinds of ways. Uh, we will fall into sin, and we will need God's forgiveness again and again. So for example, let me give you a few passages here. Galatians 6.1. Uh, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now notice what that implies. It's possible to be a Christian but still get caught in some sort of transgression that requires a brother or sister to come alongside of you and pull you out of it. So be a Christian and struggle with sin. Galatians 6.1. 1 Corinthians 3.1-3. I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. He's talking to Christians, by the way. It's fascinating. I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in an only human way? So these are Christians, but their relationships to one another are marred by jealousy and strife, indicating that you can really be saved, know Jesus Christ, and still struggle. 1 John 1, 8-9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The idea is that we will often need to confess our sins and be forgiven again and again and again, with the implication that until Jesus comes back or we die, we will struggle with sin, we will be tempted, and we will fall at times. So what the New Testament says about the believer's struggle with sin in general needs to be applied specifically to sexual temptation. And we recognize that it's possible to know Jesus as your Savior and still struggle with sexual temptation and immorality to a degree just as we can struggle with any number of other sins. But then that raises a second question. Okay, so we can be really be a Christian and struggle with sexual purity. Okay, but how, do, how then can we distinguish someone who is a, a real Christian but struggling with sexual impurity and the person Paul describes here in verse 5 who lives in sexual immorality and has no future? 
How can we tell that I'm a Christian struggling with sexual impurity versus this person who's going to be damned? And the first thing I want to say there is you can't always tell. Depending on the severity of the sexual sin, it's not always possible to distinguish a believer from an unbeliever. Oh, God knows those who are his. But at a purely human level, it may not be possible to say you're a believer. This is another way of saying we need to distinguish sharply between salvation and the assurance of salvation. The assurance of salvation is your own subjective awareness that you belong to God and you're saved. Uh, And your obedience or disobedience can affect your assurance. When you're walking in rebellion against the Lord, unrepentant rebellion especially, there is no reason for for you to think that you're a Christian even though you might be. You might be objectively a Christian, you belong to God, but there is no reason for you to think that you are a believer, depending on the severity of the sin, the hold it has on you. So we see, for example, 2 Peter 1.9. Whoever lacks these qualities, these qualities include things like self-control, steadfastness, love, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So disobedience to God, willful rebellion against the Lord that you don't repent of, severe, significant sexual immorality can cause you to lose the assurance of your salvation that you really are a Christian, even though objectively you could be. And if that's where you are, then scripture says, cry out to the Lord for mercy, confess your sins, seek forgiveness, and in the presence of God, resolve to turn from all unrighteousness. First thing we want to say, depending on the severity of the sin, It's not always possible to discern whether or not a person is a believer who is struggling with sexual immorality or an unbeliever who is controlled by sexual immorality. However, in many cases, it is possible to distinguish. And one sign that you are a Christian who is struggling with sexual immorality is that you never stop fighting. You never become complacent about your sexual sin. You keep seeking grace. You keep striving to put to death your impurity. When you sin, you confess with a broken heart, Lord, I've sinned against you forgive me. You resolve in God's presence not to do it again. And you take practical steps to turn from your sexual impurity. For for instance, you you get people who hold you accountable. You confess your sins to others. You show that your commitment to sexual purity is greater than your commitment to avoiding shame. Confession is hard. People who make war on, on on their sexual impurity and fight it and are not complacent about it, show that they're a spiritual life. They might struggle, they might fail, but they never give up. They continue to, to confess it and seek to repent of it and take practical measures to put it to death. It's a sign that you are indeed a Christian who's struggling with sexual immorality. And I would add by way of encouragement, something C.S. Lewis says here, to those who find yourself wanting to put sexual sin to death but struggling again and again and again with impurity. Here's what Lewis says. We may indeed be sure that perfect chastity, like perfect love, will not be attained by merely human efforts. You must ask for God's help. Even when you have done so, it may seem to you for a long time that no help or less help than you need is being given. Never mind. After each failure, ask forgiveness. Pick yourself up and try again. Very often what God first helps us towards is not the virtue itself, but just this power of always trying again. For however important chastity may be, this process trains us in habits of the soul which are more important still. It cures our illusions about ourselves 
and teaches us to depend on God. The only fatal thing is to sit down content with anything less than perfection. It's an encouraging word. Sometimes what God teaches you as he withholds for a season that that complete sexual purity that you're striving for is he's teaching you how to just keep persevering towards holiness. Uh, When you fall, repent, receive his forgiveness and move on. And And that habit of soul, that perseverance is a quality that you are learning even as you are putting this to death. So keep fighting. If you're fighting, if you have not made your peace with sexual impurity, that's a good sign that you are indeed a believer who happens to struggle with sexual immorality. Another indication is you're, make, you're going to make some progress. Progress might be slow. It might take time. But if the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you, you're going to eventually start taking steps towards the light. Imperfectly, yes, but truly. David Powelson notes that sometimes we're running towards sexual purity. Sometimes we're walking towards sexual purity. Sometimes we're crawling towards sexual purity. And sometimes we're just staring at sexual purity. All right, you know, God can work with that, but are you at least staring at sexual purity? Is there some movement towards the light? Again, this, this is not, it's gonna, typically it doesn't just change overnight. It takes time, but is there some discernible progress? And third, I would add, when you commit sexual immorality and sin against God, are you grieved mainly about the consequences to yourself or about the fact that you've dishonored Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a Christian to grieve over your sexual misconduct. Uh, when you see the effects that your sexual impurity has on your family, on your marriage, on your life, it can produce a grief. The Christian certainly will have that grief, but, but there's even a more fundamental grief. What grieves you when you sin is the fact that I've dishonored my Savior, Jesus Christ, that I've displeased Him. Is there that vertical Godward sense of grief when you fall short. So reason number one to, to resist sexual impurity, to turn from it, is that nothing less than your soul is at stake. Don't let anybody, don't let anybody deceive you, Paul is saying. The stakes are high. Uh, sexual sin and impurity is deadly. Take it seriously. Second reason to put aside sexual impurity is that you are no longer children of the dark, you are children of the light. You are no longer children of the dark, uh, you are children of the light. Uh, Paul says in verse 7, don't become partners with them, the sons of disobedience. That is, don't live as they live. Don't uh, engage in, in, in the same lifestyle that characterizes them. Now here's the reason. It's another way of saying don't walk in sexual impurity. Do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. When Paul uses these metaphors of darkness and light, he's not just talking, he's not mainly talking about uh, the moral quality of our life, sin versus righteousness. Uh, One fundamental structure of thought in Paul's letters is this idea that we have been transferred from one domain, one sphere, the domain of darkness, into the domain and sphere of the light. Uh, Once we were in bondage to sin, uh, controlled by our sin, by Satan, Uh, we were slaves to Satan, slaves to sin, we were sinners, and we didn't have the power to break free of that. But in Jesus Christ, we have been transferred from that domain of darkness 
to the domain of light. And with this transfer, we have a new master, Jesus Christ. We have a new identity. We are now sons of God. We are saints, those who are uh, taken out of this defiled world, washed and claimed as God's own. We have a new identity. And we have new power to resist temptation and walk in obedience. What Paul wants us to understand is that our relationship to sin as believers is not what it was prior to our conversion. Before we believed in Jesus, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were slaves to sin and couldn't be free from it. But now that we have been claimed by Christ, we have the power to walk in newness of life. It's by way of uh, identifying a parallel passage, uh, Colossians 1.13 notes, same kind of thought, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You were once in this dark environment, slaves to sin, you've been plucked out of that and brought under the reign of King Jesus. What this means is when you're tempted by sin, by sexual immorality, is you have to remind yourself that you have a new identity. You are a child of God. You are a saint. God has claimed you for his own. And so this immoral, impure conduct is out of step with what Jesus has made you. That's no longer who you are. You are no longer fundamentally a rebel and a sinner. You're a child of God. And you need to recognize that this behavior is out of step with what Christ has made you. You have a new identity. And two, understand that you have new power. Part of the way sin keeps us in bondage is by telling us you will always struggle. You've struggled with this for years, and you will continue to struggle. And we believe that. The way out, the way, out, the, the way to resist that is to remind yourself, no, because Christ is my king, because I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I can say no to sin and yes to Jesus Christ. At any given point of temptation, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I have the resources to say no to temptation and yes to Jesus Christ. And when you understand that, that actually empowers you to obey. When you understand that you can actually resist temptation and walk in obedience, that recognition strengthens you to obey. You don't have to live this way anymore. Sin whispers in your ear, oh, you'll always just be a slave to this sin. But faith responds to that by saying, no, I'm a child of the light. I have power to walk in righteousness, and so I'm going to obey. The reason we don't walk in sexual immorality is because we have become children of the light, as Paul says. We have a new identity, and we have power to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. So as you struggle with, as you seek to put sexual immorality to death in your life, the, the fundamental way you do that is by faith. Remember all that is yours in Jesus Christ. Remember that you are now a child of God. Remember that you have the power to resist temptation. And as you believe that, you'll be able to resist. This is a common theme in Paul's letters. It's not try harder to resist. There's a place for that. But more fundamentally, Paul says, look at what Jesus has done. Look at what you have in him. And as you believe that, resist. So fight sexual immorality by faith. Fight it with other people. We saw in Galatians 6 how somebody who's caught in, in sin may need a brother or sister to come al alongside of them to help them out. Well, sexual morality is one of those sins that we, are, we often need other people to help us. We need accountability. We need an older brother or sister to whom we can confess 
So if you're struggling with sexual immorality, go find someone and tell them what you're dealing with. Ask for prayer. Uh, that shows that you're more committed to sexual purity than even avoiding shame. And by the way, young people, high schoolers, college students, or younger, if you're struggling with sexual immorality and impurity, uh, if you're struggling with pornography, fornication, or some other sexual sin, I encourage you to go to your mom and dad. Let them know what you're struggling with. They want to help you. And God's means of helping you out of the sin that you're facing is the guidance of your parents. Go to mom, go to dad. Let them know what you're struggling with. Fight the battle with others. And then fight the battle in all dimensions of life. So you can't kill sexual impurity often by focusing just on sexual impurity. You need to pursue a more comprehensive obedience. You need to seek uh, to be more and more faithful to Jesus in other aspects of life. In this regard, it's instructive to compare verse 2 and verse 3 here. Uh, Paul tells us, walk in love. And then in verse 3, but, but, notice the contrast, but sexual immorality and impurity must not even be named. In other words, if you're walking in love, you're not going to be walking in sexual impurity. Sometimes putting sexual impurity to death means learning how to love better. Sometimes one, one root of sexual impurity is selfishness. And as you become the kind of person who's able to love others, lay down your life for others, you'll find that you're able increasingly to even kill sexual impurity. So the battle against sexual misconduct is broader than just stopping it, right? Certainly we want to stop it, but we also want to pursue obedience to Jesus Christ in every aspect of life. And as we do that, there is spillover, if you like, into the area of sexual purity. So Paul has called us to sexual purity and he's given us two reasons uh, that we should resist sexual immorality, those who don't, won't finally enter the kingdom of Jesus. Um, and then secondly, we are children of the light, not the darkness. Second thing that he goes on to say is that we ought to walk as children of the light. At one time you were darkness, but now uh, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The focus of the Christian life is not mainly or simply a negative one. I need to stop this. It's like, yes, I need to put this off. But increasingly, I need to walk in the light, in truth, in goodness, blessing other people through my conduct, in righteousness, in submission to God. Uh, we need to seek comprehensive submission to God. And it's interesting to note in verse 10 that we do that as we discern what, what is pleasing to the Lord. The implication is that we, at least sometimes, in a given situation, won't be able to identify exactly what the Lord's will is, and so we have to think about it. We have to prayerfully consider the Lord's will in a given situation that we might understand what is good and right and true so as to be able to do it. There is a place in the Christian life for moral reflection, for considering in a given situation what God expects of us and doing it. And uh, one implication of that is we need to be more intentional than we sometimes are about taking steps towards greater obedience. Many of you are very intentional in your work life. You schedule things, you plan things. You have a sense of, I have to do this first and then this. Uh, you're very intentional when it comes to your bills and managing your household, and that's all good, of course. Um, but we are often not that, in, not that way when it comes to our walk with Jesus Christ. Uh, Tony Reinke, in his book Lit, makes this observation. He notes, often we don't take the time to plan our spiritual growth. Thinking carefully about being sanctified, setting goals, and pursuing permanent life change shows the evidence of spiritual 
maturity? What's your plan for growth? Where, what are the areas where you need to grow? And what steps are you going to take to grow in those areas? We're not just going to find ourselves, you know, one day we wake up and all of a sudden we're self-controlled and full of joy and peace and so on. Uh, it takes prayerful reflection and intentionality. And by the way, parents, do this with your children. Consider where they are in their walk with Jesus Christ. Where, they, where do they need to grow in terms of their character? Help them. Help them take steps to grow in the areas where they need work. Those of you who are parents know that the needs of one child can be very different from the needs of another. So help them in ways that are appropriate to the child. Third and finally, help others find the light. Help others find the light. Once again, Paul repeats, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Uh, in verse 9, Paul talks about the fruit of light, uh, light, which is goodness and righteousness and truth. Uh, here, he, contra- he contrasts that with the unfruitful works of darkness. The idea is that to live an immoral life is to live a life without fruit, without works that bring glory to God and do good to others. Take no part in these works, but instead expose them. And then Paul explains in verse 13 what it means to expose them. He says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. So this is what light does. It causes that which is hidden to become apparent. And Paul is saying that our light ought to shine such that wickedness is exposed for what it is. The mask is torn off and filth is seen to be filth and evil is seen to be evil. Now, how does that exposure happen? Well, the context makes it clear that as we walk in the light, in goodness, righteousness, and truth, our lifestyle and the contrast that exists between us and others will cause the wickedness in their lives to be exposed. 1 Peter 4, 4 through 5 say, uh, these verses note, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, outsiders. They malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The implication is, as outsiders see your pure and righteous conduct, They are bothered by it. They resent it. They malign you. But why do they do that? It's because their wickedness is being exposed. As they compare their life to your life, their speech to your speech, they're convicted, and the response is hostility. Now, you know that response. Uh, If you've been around somebody who's uh, further along than you are, wiser, more judicious in their speech, sometimes we want to emulate them, and sometimes we just resent it. Uh, There's a, you know, who are they to think that there's holier than thou. Why do we do that? We do that because we don't like the darkness in our hearts and lives exposed, right? And so what Paul is saying is as we walk as Christ would have us walk, as we live lives marked by generosity, love for others, joy and peace and self-control and purity, as we live that way, other people are going to be convicted by the fact that they don't, that there is darkness in their life uh, and they will resent it. Uh, They will oppose it. So our lifestyle will expose the darkness. And in addition, we should add, it's not just our lifestyle, but our witness. Uh, Part part of what we're called to as Christians is to tell the world what is right and what is wrong, what is evil and what is righteous. We need to bear witness to those things in ways that are wise and respectful. We still need to bear witness. Jesus says in John 7, verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it 
that its works are evil. He bears witness that what they do is out of step with God's will. And in the same way, we as God's people need to declare what Scripture teaches is righteous and unrighteous. It's increasingly difficult to do in this context where to say that anybody's conduct is immoral is itself viewed as immoral. Uh, but that's the call that we have. So we expose the darkness by living in righteousness and bearing witness to the truth. But notice Paul doesn't stop there. Yes, the light exposes, but then he takes, a, he takes it a step further. For anything that becomes visible is light. The idea here is that light not only exposes, but transforms. That which is illuminated, in a sense, becomes light. So as our lifestyle and as our words reflect God's will, we not only expose wickedness in others, but we become means by which God transforms them from darkness to light. Just as Jesus did for us, Paul says in verse 14. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now this may be a fragment from an early Christian hymn, summing up the teaching of, of Scripture. But notice that we were once dead in our sins and trespasses. Christ shone on us and does continue to shine on us, and we are thereby transformed. Light transforms. And in the same way, as we walk in obedience and purity, uh, others will not simply have their sins exposed, but our light will actually have a transforming effect. People through our lives will come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. This is the thought, for instance, in 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They see your good works, and the response is that they glorify God. Matthew 5, 15. Let your light shine before others, so that, you may see, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God's glory shines through his people, and causes people to respond with adoration. Our goodness reflects the goodness of God and leads them to uh, repent and to be transformed. So that means that your conduct, your attitudes, your speech, your behavior, doesn't just affect you. You are constantly saying something to the world and to the people around you about Jesus. What are you saying? As we walk in the light, Jesus Christ uses that to convict others, to expose their sin, and to transform them and draw them to himself. Finally, an implication of this truth, a second implication of this truth, is that if Jesus uses our lives and speech to draw others to himself, to transform them, then as Christians we should be developing non-superficial relationships with non-Christians. Uh, we should be getting out of just our church circles, community groups, and actually getting to know our neighbors and coworkers, because how else are they going to see the light if we don't spend time with them, right? The assumption is that at some level there's a mingling, that they're able to, to sort of view up close the light that exists through the Holy Spirit. Is there a place for that in your life? If this is God's means by which he transforms people, then it should be a priority for us to pursue relationships with those who are far from him. The call of Jesus on our lives in this passage is clear. We turn from sexual immorality. We walk in the light. By God's grace, we become instruments by, by which Jesus draws others to the light, by which he transforms them. Amen. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, we pray that you would grant us increasingly to reflect you, not only for our own joy, uh, this is indeed what we desire, but also that we might be instruments through which you make yourself known to others. Uh, Lord Jesus, we pray that your word would bear good fruit in our hearts and lives. Amen.